The opioid epidemic in America claimed 450,000 lives between 1999 and 2018. That means that in the last 20 years, more people have died from opioid overdoses than firearms or car accidents. The mortality, um, people are, you know, that are using opiates, it's, it's six times the general population. In Idaho, 3.9% of Idahoans aged 12 years and older reported misuse of prescription pain relievers in 2016. It's important to point out that a lot of the research suggests that 40 to 60% of the variance with regards to who struggles with addiction versus who doesn't, 40 to 60% of that variance is accounted for by genetics. Among Idaho high school students, 13.9% have taken a prescription drug without a doctor's prescription. When I was in high school, I had my first soccer injury. I blew out my ACL, was prescribed Percocet, and that was my introduction to pills. The CDC classified 13 of Idaho's 44 counties, that's nearly 30%, in their highest category of opioids prescribed per person. Higher opioid prescribing puts patients at risk for addiction and overdose. If you're a healthcare professional working with someone who is seeking treatment and recovery options for opioid addiction, or if you are a citizen interested in learning more about prevention, treatment, and recovery education resources, Echo Idaho is here to help. This is Something for the Pain, a podcast for Idaho healthcare professionals and citizens working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent treat and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. In the ruralest of places where the resources are scarce, they're calling Echo Idaho an answer to our prayers. Echo Something for the Pain is brought to you by the Idaho chapter of Project ECHO, or Extensions for Community Healthcare Outcomes, an innovative strategy to increase the capacity of the local healthcare workforce to improve lives for patients and providers in the here and now. Using video conferencing and adult learning techniques, ECHO Idaho connects community providers across the state with specialists in live online collaborative sessions. The sessions designed around case-based learning and mentorship help healthcare professionals gain the expertise required to meet the needs of Idaho residents. Project ECHO has now been replicated throughout the United States and around the world to address a number of special health areas, including programs focused on increasing healthcare professionals' capacity to better respond to substance and opioid use disorder. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. As long as you've got the internet, you can join from it. In today's episode, episode one, We're going to be hearing a lecture from Dr. Craig Lotus, a clinical psychologist at the Boise VA Medical Center, who specializes in substance use disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Lotus is going to be speaking on understanding the disease of addiction, and we'll be looking at some different narratives surrounding how we conceptualize addiction. The lecture we're going to be hearing was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on January 7th, 2021, as a part of ECHO Idaho's Counseling Techniques for Substance Use Disorders series. Without further ado, let's turn it over to Craig. So my name is Craig Lotus. I'm a clinical psychologist. I work at the Boise VA. I did my postdoctoral fellowship there. I think it was about eight years ago now. 
and I've been working there ever since. I work in the inpatient substance use slash PTSD program. Um, used to work over exclusively on the substance use side, and within the last year, I've moved over to the PTSD side. So today, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, kind of how to conceptualize addiction. So some learning objectives. I wanted to just kind of explore this question. Um, we hear this so much. Is addiction a disease or is it a choice? Um, I think there's overwhelming evidence to, to support that is much more, it is much more of a disease process than a simple choice. It is very far from a simple choice, especially once we're active in our addiction. Um, so I want to just kind of explore a little bit the implications of, of how we conceptualize our answer to that question. How does it apply to our direct clinical care? How does it apply kind of on a, a larger kind of societal level in terms of legislation and how we respond to people who are struggling with addiction? Um, and then more specifically for, for substance use disorder techniques for clinicians, look at how can we use this conceptualization and the information that we have regarding how addiction is, is a disease. Um, how can we use this information to help our patients move through themes like shame and guilt that often are a barrier to treatment and often um, kind of complicate things or um, make it so people aren't able to receive the treatment that they need? So just some recommended resources in the realm of hungry ghosts is a book by Gabor Mate, which he's a, he's a brilliant physician who works in Vancouver. Everything you need to know, everything you know about addiction is wrong is a Ted talk by Johan Hari. Um, hopefully many of you have seen that. If not, I would strongly recommend you check that out today. Um, he wrote a book called chasing the scream amongst other books, but he's got some very interesting views and I think very helpful views regarding addiction. And then last but not least, there's a documentary called Pleasure Unwoven that we show in our program. A lot of the information that I'm going to be covering is coming from that documentary. Um, this is by uh, physician Kevin McCauley, who is in recovery himself. Uh, I believe it is available for free on YouTube, um, and I would strongly encourage you to check that out. So I wanted to start by just acknowledging the huge amount of stigma. So substance abuse tends to evoke even greater negative attitudes than schizophrenia. And I think if, if we kind of start to unpack this question a little bit. I think a lot of this has to do with where do we fall on the disease versus choice question? And if we're honest, I think as you know, if, if you've ever had a friend or family member who struggled with addiction, uh, it can be very hard to be accepting and compassionate and set boundaries. In some ways, it can feel easier to say, oh, this is a choice. I watched the show Intervention. I know what I need to do. I need to make my relationship contingent upon their sobriety. It gives us a sense of power. Um, I think it also perpetuates guilt and shame and some really unhelpful narratives surrounding addiction. So the disease question Basically, we have this kind of dichotomy, and this seems to just kind of be the way that our, our, our brains work and prefer to have it as a disease or it's a choice, it's one or the other. We have a, a harder time with um, kind of more nuance and, and complexity. So basically, the, the choice argument would say if somebody's struggling with addiction, if I go, this is, this is a, a, a blunt um, analogy, so excuse me, but this is from Pleasure Unwoven. If I go put a gun to somebody's head who's struggling with addiction and say, stop using, they will probably stop using, right? Um, and our thought is, you know, they're, they're choosing to stop using. But in reality, I think more of what's happening when we're active in addiction is, is we're thinking, can I 
smoke this, snort this, inject this, drink this before that bullet hits my brain, because that just seems to be the way that addiction works and kind of grabs hold of um, the more primitive parts of our brain. So the disease question, I think, really helps, you know, if we're able to conceptualize and look at really kind of some of the neurobiology of addiction, it really helps to paint a, a different picture and a picture that helps us understand why we see some of these behaviors and why we see people acting in ways that seem 180 degrees the opposite of their normal kind of values and behavior. Why, why do these occur when we're active in our addiction? So according to Kevin McCauley and Pleasure Unwoven, it is a disease and it's a disease of choice. So the, a disorder of the very parts of the brain we need to make proper decisions. And at this stage, I'm going to give a caveat and say, I am not a neuropsychologist. I am not a neuroscientist. I am a, a clinical psychologist. So I have some knowledge of the brain, but there are, there are people who are much more knowledgeable than I am. So I'm going to be speaking kind of in, in generalities. So it focuses on the role of communication between the frontal cortex and the midbrain via dopamine and glutamate. Don't I sound smart? So what do we take from this? I think the important things to take from this, the, the frontal cortex and the midbrain, if you've ever done DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, this maps on really nicely to the reason mind or the rational mind versus the emotion mind. The emotion mind being more the midbrain, our limbic system, and the rational, reasonable mind being our prefrontal cortex. Again, in general. Um, also, if you've ever seen Peter Siegel, who is a psychiatrist who does a lot of really great work with mindfulness, he uh, has a conceptualization for children where he talks about, he says, if, if my fist is my brain, we've got your upstairs brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, and then we have your downstairs brain, which is, in general, generalities, your midbrain and your limbic system. So I think finding a language that is palatable for our patients um, and, and that they can really kind of understand is, is really important to keep in mind. So according to uh, Dr. McCauley's framework, addiction is a disease of genes, reward, memory, stress, and choice. So I think the first thing that is really important to point out, especially when we have a patient who's struggling with shame and guilt, it's important to point out that a lot of the research suggests that 40 to 60% of the variance with regards to who struggles with addiction versus who doesn't, 40 to 60% of that variance is accounted for by genetics. And variance is a statistical term for those of you who aren't stats nerds. It's basically a statistical way to determine why do some people fall into addiction well, others don't. And we can control for other variables and kind of isolate and say, it looks like genetics is responsible for 40 to 60%. So that's a pretty big number. Um, the analogy that I like to make here, partly because I work in the VA system, and, and this is a little cheesy, but I make the analogy of body armor and say, you know, some of us have, have a different amount of body armor when we go in on a deployment or in, into a combat situation. And that is based on our genetics and our early life experiences. Some of us are going to be much more flexible and able to kind of bend and adapt. Other, others are going to be much more rigid and, and more likely to fall into um, that cycle of addiction. So, and the way that this is presented in Pleasure Unwoven, he uses Russian nesting dolls. I don't know if you guys ever have encountered those, but they all kind of fit inside of each other. And, and I take that to kind of, I think he's saying that this is a cumulative process and it's kind of additive. So 
each layer um, is impacted and passes that kind of impact onto the next layer. So reward is broken and then passes that those deficiencies onto memory and those um, areas in our brain. So reward, some things that I've found really helpful and important for me for conceptualizing addiction. Reward, the role of dopamine. So the way that it's described that has really resonated with me, and again, this is in Pleasure Unwoven, so if, if you're interested, please check that out. Dopamine is released to tell us when things are better than expected. Uh, it's the way it's been described to me. So the, the analogy is if I go to a gumball machine, I pop in a quarter, I turn the knob, I get one gumball. There's probably going to be a little squirt of dopamine. It's not better than expected, but it's still good. If I put in that quarter and turn the knob and by some miracle, I get two gumballs, there's going to be a larger squirt of dopamine. And we believe the function of that dopamine is, is to say, hey, this was this is rad. I like this. We should do this. And part of what what is helpful to remember is when people talk about kind of that idea of chasing the dragon, so to speak, or, you know, the first high or the first effect of your substance abuse was the best. It's because you have expectations after that first use. I think it's also important to remember that the levels of dopamine that are found in our brain when we ingest substances are much, much higher than what our brain was designed for. So it's kind of this huge spike in dopamine. So And, and that helps us understand why I could be passed out on the, the bathroom floor and my brain is still like, this is the best night ever. There's obviously significant repercussions once our brain realizes, oh, there's way too much dopamine and it starts to push back. We'll get to that when we talk a little bit about stress. Dr. Lotus makes the case that addiction takes the form of disease, not choice, and that some of us are predisposed to addiction through genetics and early life experiences. The framework of addiction as disease has major implications for approaches to patient care, as well as on a larger societal level, and in legislation and policy when it comes to conceptualizing treatment for people who are struggling with addiction. Let's hear more from Dr. Lotus about the connection between cravings, stress, and recovery. So we were talking a little bit about memory. You know, this this helps us understand a little bit why people have these very vivid memories associated with use. It's it's in large part because we are flooding our, our brain with with dopamine and then glutamate. And that helps us also understand and, and normalize the experience of cravings. The research suggests that cravings are a natural part of the recovery process. Um, they may never completely go away. So one of the things we need to do is is if if people are responding to cravings, thinking this means there's something wrong with me, or I don't really want to be sober, or, you know, what does this mean? And they start to struggle with that craving. That's really problematic. So we want to use things like mindfulness and urge surfing to help them just kind of observe and do their best to wade through that experience and then get back living their life. Then we go on to talk about stress and the role of stress. We talk about how our brain kind of resets. Once our brain realizes that there's excess dopamine, it'll start to release CRF or what they call corticotropin releasing factor. And it will push push down on the dopamine levels. And after repeated kind of binge use, or if we kind of go on a runner, so to speak, it can really upset the, the kind of balance of our brain and what they call the hedonic set point. So what it takes, what amount of dopamine does it take for me to feel good? 
this helps us understand a little bit of why is it so difficult, especially in the, the early stages of recovery, when you're, you're doing everything people are telling you and you still feel crummy. It can take some time. And depending on our substance abuse, that time may vary depending on our own um, individual kind of biology. That time may vary as well. The other piece of research that I think is really fascinating that, that I would encourage people to talk about with patients, they have hooked electrodes to parts of, of rat and mice brains. They keep them alive, but they, they hook them to the, the areas involved in the pleasure kind of center and response. And then they have a lever that they can press. And every time they press that lever, they get a little electric shock. There's a release of dopamine. Feels good. It kind of mimics um, the effect of, of substances. What research has consistently found over and over and over again is these rats and mice will consistently press that lever obsessively seemingly come, you know, coming into that cycle of addiction. They don't eat, they don't sleep, they don't socialize. They do this until they die. They will even continue to do this if we put an electrified grate underneath that rat or that mouse. They will stay on that grate and hit that lever to get that surge of dopamine until they die. So if rats and mice can have addiction, I don't think this is about willpower as much as, as some narratives suggest it is. I don't think this is about um, morality and being a bad person as, as a lot of our, our narratives suggest. I think also, if we put a metal grate, an electrified grate under them and shock them, they still do it. That suggests to me that punishment isn't always gonna be helpful. formulation that Kevin McCauley uses is that the, the majority of the population falls on the left side here as, as a, a non-addict. And personally, I, I'd never, I don't like that term. I wouldn't use that term. That's something I want to touch on too real briefly. But before that, so they're, they're either a non-user, they experiment, they use, they abuse. Um, but to, to them and the, to their midbrain, the drug is the drug. Somebody who goes into kind of the, the cycle of addiction, their midbrain is saying the drug equals survival. And it's putting the, the, the drug is as, as important as things like breathing, eating, sleeping. Our midbrain is responsible for, in, in the simplest terms, the next 10 to 15 seconds of our life and keeping us alive. And if my midbrain thinks I need to keep using my substance of use to stay alive, I'm probably going to do that. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, getting back to that upstairs brain, downstairs brain, in a nutshell, the way that I explain this to patients is part of what happens when I am active in, in, in my addiction is the communication between my downstairs brain and my upstairs brain has been greatly damaged, if not cut off completely. My upstairs brain, my prefrontal cortex, where I have things like morals and executive functioning, and I'm able to control my impulses. All of that is in, in some ways almost offline. So that helps us understand this is what's happening when you're active in your addiction. It's not that you're a bad person or don't care about your family or your job or your other responsibilities. Your brain, in essence, has, has kind of been hijacking. So before we get to the, to the key points, the other thing that I want to say is because of the amount of shame and guilt that we see in this population, it is imperative that we are really mindful and thoughtful with what language we use. So don't call it their substance of choice. It is not a choice. And if I say it's your substance of choice, I'm implying that it is a choice. So instead, I prefer to say substance of use. Other things 
I don't like the label of addicts or, or, you know, alcoholic even personally, I'd rather say I'm your, your person who struggles with addiction or your person who has an alcohol use disorder, really just trying to humanize and in any way that we can chip away at some of that shame and guilt and, and treat them with that unconditional positive regard that Carl Rogers talked about, that's going to be beneficial for our treatment. So key points, addiction is a disorder of genes, reward, memory, stress, and choice. And I think a bigger point is how, how we answer this question, is addiction a disease, is, is going to inform how we interact with people who struggle with addiction. It's going to inform our treatments. It's going to inform our legislation. It's going to inform whether our, our government is supportive of things like uh, safe injection sites or supervised injection sites. It's going to determine whether our legislators are supportive of things like Suboxone and Naltrexone and medication-assisted treatments. So I think it's, it's, it's important to, to kind of say the message and let people know that this is much more a disease than a choice. Dopamine, reward, and glutamate memory are heavily involved in kind of that self-reinforcing nature of substance use disorders. You get this quick, almost immediate response depending on your substance abuse, that is incredibly reinforcing. Living life on life's terms is not always incredibly reinforcing. So setting realistic expectations for our patients, I think is very important as well. Guilt and shame are ubiquitous in substance use disorders. So stock up on, on kindness, compassion, and, and non-judgment. We can use this framework to help assuage overwhelming guilt that may be a barrier to treatment. And last but not least, part of our role is to offer unconditional positive regard to our patients. So be very mindful of, of the language that you use. And I think it's really important, too, to distinguish that, you know, if they engaged in some shameful behaviors, using the qualifier, you did this when you were active in your addiction versus you were active in your recovery. And, and just kind of letting them know that this, this does play a role. It doesn't absolve you of accountability, but it plays a significant role. That's the voice of Echo Idaho's assistant director, Katie Palmer. Yes, please. Just thinking about dopamine and in the brain. This is an Echo participant speaking, Haley. Echo sessions like this one bring a myriad of professionals together virtually. In our Counseling Techniques for Substance Use Disorder series, we often have psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, addiction specialists, and counselors present on the same video call. You know, long-term use generally results, if I'm correct, in less receptors for dopamine. It's its way of coping with too much dopamine in the brain. Is it natural in, in addicts to already have a lower level of dopamine? So then when they get the higher amount, that's their that brain goes into the survival mode of wanting to get more dopamine? Or how does that work? That's a wonderful question. And to be totally honest with you, I am not sure. The one thing I would say is there is a lot of evidence that um, things like neglect or um, childhood trauma um, make us much more susceptible to addiction. So I have one more question then on that line. Um, thinking about like preventative health care for um, children who have strong lines of addiction within their family, how do you 
intervene or help families give resources to try to educate these children about, you know, possible risks, but then also prepare these children for being more resilient. Craig, do you mind if I pick that one up just as a family doc? Yeah, of course, please. This is Dr. Radha Sadacharan, primary care physician and MAT provider at the Boise VA Medical Center. Dr. Sadacharan was one of the panelists present for this lecture. One of the things we think about are ACEs, just like you're pointing out, Haley, in terms of like adverse childhood experiences. And that's our way of quantifying trauma that people undergo. And you're totally right. Like everyone knows this. The more trauma that someone incurs, the more likely they are to struggle with things like addiction, to struggle with incarceration. And so a lot of this really focuses on what can we do to prevent these types of situations. And like we don't have much control over this, right? Um, and so we should be identifying problems. And so in pediatric practices, we should be screening for ACEs. If you're working with kids, you should be screening for ACEs. And then based on that, you're identifying the weak points. And so I actually really like SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's four pillars of recovery as a way to identify preventive protective factors. And so they talk about health home, community, and purpose. And I think that can start from when kids are really young. And so identifying the things that they love in their life or the things that make them feel safe in their life. And then spanning out from that, like, are there people in your life that you feel like you can go to if there's something that's going on? They might not be the people that live in your house, but are they your neighbors or is your grandma? Is there someone else? And so identifying those points and then over time, being able to work on that is resiliency. We can't predict who's going to be struggling with addiction later on, but we have a good idea of the risk factors that predispose someone to it. So can we modify those risk factors? Thanks so much, Rada. Um, So I actually think this is a great time to tease Scott up. So Scott, if you can um, introduce yourself, who and where you are, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the services that the Phoenix offers and the importance of resilience building activities and kind of how people would navigate and find those. Great, thanks. So uh, again, Scott Jones, I'm in Boise, Idaho, and uh, I'm the chapter manager with the Phoenix. The Phoenix is a national organization. We're a nonprofit, and we work with anybody who has struggled with substance use disorder or chooses to live a sober life. We do an assortment of programs. Uh, Most of them are based in fitness. Uh, So it could be yoga, mountain biking. We could be doing some strength training or, or whatever that event looks like and it varies a little bit by each location and we also throw in things like social and and art and and various things like that as activities and uh the only thing that we require for people to attend is 48 hours of continuous sobriety or more and again those events are free um by, by people participating in these activities and these events, it's not so much about like how much weight we're pushing up over our head or if we're doing the perfect warrior three yoga pose. It's more about the connections that are created by the people that are participating together. There's levels of encouragement and folks uh, can understand what maybe somebody else is going through. Uh, so there's a lot of relatability. And so we see that folks have a longer uh, journey in recovery um, with a a community of people that support and help them along their journey. Um, So I know, uh, Katie, you had a lot of questions in that one question, and I'm not sure if I hit all of them, but um, that... that. (laughs) No, that's good.
great. Thank you so much. That again was a didactic presentation by Dr. Craig Lotus titled Understanding the Disease of Addiction. That lecture was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on January 7th, 2021 as a part of ECHO Idaho's Counseling Techniques for Substance Use Disorders series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the ECHO Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck that accompanied that presentation is also available on our website, www.uidaho.edu echo. The recommended reading and viewing materials that Craig mentioned in his lecture are currently available on our podcast webpage. For those and instructions about how to claim continuing education credit for listening to this episode, visit our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live ECHO sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by ECHO Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by VCorp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today. But join us next time when we'll be exploring the topic of substance use in Idaho with LCSW and Director of Recovery for Life, Amy Jepson. Until next time, Idaho, take care of yourself. Places where the resources are scarce, they are calling Echo Idaho in answer to our prayers. Echo Idaho. Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Todd Palmer, Craig Lotus, and Jason Coombs, respectively. Big thanks to everyone who contributed to today's episode, Craig Lotus, Radha Sadacharan, and Scott Jones. We'd also like to thank the other members of our Counseling Techniques for Substance Use Disorder series expert panel. Drew Holliday, Case Management Team Coordinator at Recovery for Life in Boise. Sarah Bennett, Executive Director and Owner of Riverside Recovery in Lewiston. And Lindsey Brown, Lead Recovery Coach at Peer Recovery Supports of Idaho, LLC. And a big thanks to all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Michelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, Carly Klein, and Sam Steffen. Echo Idaho.